it's great to be with you um, this morning. And as Sandra said, for those of you that don't know me, I'm married to Steve, and we get the pleasure um, of leading Central Vineyard, um, which has been um, a great journey for us over the past 14 years. Yeah, we've been church planting. My husband and I, we literally got married and began church planting, so we've been doing that for just over 20 years now. Um, and I'm really excited to be here. Um, so today I am continuing back in a series we started called More Than a Name. Last week, if you were here, you would have had a brief interlude as Steve came over to share the Together vision for 2020. But today we're back in the series and I think you've just had Sandra so far who's looked at Yahweh Elohim and God is the Lord, the Lord, repeated for emphasis and a sign that no other God or Lord should be placed above him or before him. He came to declare the majestic nature of who he was, that we live in the reality that there are many gods, with a small g, and those gods vie for our attention and our time. But more than that, for this series, we're looking at what his name says about him and what it means for us to relate to him. That the name of God is just that, it's more than a name. The series is focusing on a passage in Exodus 34, so you'll probably hear that repeated every week, and it's verses six to seven. Each week we're gonna look at a word or a line or a phrase from that piece of scripture. And how each part of this, it's, it's God's self-declaration of his name, of who he is. And we want to look how we can apply that to our lives and how we can apply that to our relationship with him. So let's pick up in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And as we read this disclosure that God makes to Moses, what we need to know is that this part, this, this part of scripture actually is the most quoted part of scripture by the other um, authors of the Bible. So it's really important. And we're going to be doing a lot, of, a lot of scripture this morning. So we're going to be going in the New Testament and the Old Testament. All the words will hopefully appear on the screens, the ones that you need to follow through with. But if you've got your Bible, you can join in with that. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And today, in more than a name, we're going to be looking at the compassionate and gracious God. Now, this sounds like a nice topic, because it is. And, and I think actually even last time I was here, I talked about compassion. And I don't know how I ended up getting back on, on that um, <laughs> theme again. But one of the things that would be really interesting for you to know over the past few weeks, as I've been, as I've been reading, listening, and preparing for this, I generally thought at the beginning that I'm quite a compassionate and gracious person. But over the past two weeks, it really hasn't gone that way. <laughs> I've probably been the least compassionate and gracious person that I could ever know. Um, but it's made for um, interesting illustration and for God to remind me that um, we're never as good as we think we are. 
<laughs> and, and he loves us compassionately and graciously through that. Now, if you can imagine what it would have been like to live in 1500 BC at the foot of Mount Sinai, where Moses was, was camped. And actually, we probably can't imagine it, but if it's, it's in modern day Saudi Arabia. So very hot, very arid. But in a time, you, if you were in that time and you're a Hebrew slave, you would have lived under the fear of those many gods that maybe Sandra alluded to. Those gods who were not nice. Gods that often required something from you. And so you only have to look at Greek history, whether it was mythological or whether it was real. It was, it's quite a horrendous thing to look at. And it would have affected the way that they thought and the way that they processed when along came a god who said this declaration about who he was. And at the top of that list was compassionate and gracious God. That would have been a bit of a surprise to them because they'd have been waiting for the, the bit that told them what they needed to do, who they needed to sacrifice. It would have been tricky. And maybe it's tricky for us to understand what a compassionate and gracious God looks like. But what does it mean to be compassionate? To be compassionate is to feel for someone, to be able to put yourself in somebody's situation and experience what they're feeling and to feel it too. It literally means that for you to join in on somebody else's suffering. To be gracious means you actually act upon these feelings of compassion. To show grace or to be a gracious person is to extend yourself to do something about the situation. And when I was re researching graciousness and compassion, the Cambridge University Press put it like this. The gracious person loves without worrying about whether the person he loves is worthy of his love. And so in short, that's what it means. This would have been mind-blowing this would have been mind-blowing for the Hebrew slaves, and it's mind-blowing for us still today, particularly if we haven't grasped just exactly who God is and just exactly how he feels about you. He has declared in this verse that he is compassionate and gracious, and the two often go side by side throughout the Bible. Sometimes the translation of the word compassion is written as merciful, but actually, it's worth noting that it's usually the same word. And I did think I could have gone into the Hebrew and the Greek, and we'd have been here a long time, and there's way more to say than that. <laughs> so you'll have to go away and do your own research. At one story in the Bible, we see this reflected well, is the story of Jonah. How many of us have read Jonah before? And how many of us think that it's a nice story about a guy who gets stuck in a whale? Yeah, <laughs> most of us do. If you've had any kind of Sunday school experience, um, it is a bit of a, a nice, tame story. But actually, Jonah is essentially a story about how even your worst enemy can be forgiven by God, how your worst enemy can repent, and God will show them justice. Um, 
I'm going to read a couple of little bits, but then we'll jump into Jonah in a minute. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, some of Amittai, to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me. Nineveh at the time was one of the most dangerous places to go. He was basically asked by the Lord to go and preach in an environment where the most psychotic, violent, rampaging people on earth existed, the Ninevites. They were the Assyrian empire. They were the empire. They were the arch enemy of Israel. They oppressed them. They exiled them. They were detestable people. The things they did were detestable. And if you read some of the... um, historical things um, that the Ninevites did. Just don't read that stuff whilst you're eating your dinner because it's about skinning people and cutting out entrails and uh, pinning people to walls and things. Um, But Jonah, Jonah, it says this, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish because who would want to go to Nineveh, right? He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And it's funny because actually mostly we think that Jonah was running away from Nineveh, being so hostile. But actually he's running away from the Lord. He ran from his hometown to Tarshish. Literally, Tarshish was in the opposite direction of Nineveh. So if you imagine Tarshish is modern-day, what we call modern-day Spain, and Nineveh is in modern-day northern Iraq. So literally, at the time, Spain would have been the end of their map. So he didn't run away just a little bit. He ran away to the edges of what they considered the earth. But at this stage, we don't know why he's running away from the Lord. We don't know. We just think maybe it's because the Ninevites are crazy. But post-sailing journey and post-fish, we turn to chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verses 3 to 10. The word should be up. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord eventually and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose to his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented but killed them anyway. Not really. (laughs) He did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Guess what? How did this make Jonah feel? Was he relieved at God's compassion and gracious nature? Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we be relieved? Not Jonah. To Jonah, this seemed very 
wrong. Jonah was angry with God. And if we carry on reading into chapter 4, it says this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? How dramatic is Jonah? Lord, you've forgiven those people and shown compassion on them. I'd rather die than see you do that. It's funny. It's funny how Jonah is cross about God's good nature. But the reality is, isn't that how we feel when God shows compassion to people we dislike? People who have hurt us or wounded us, how do we feel when God is gracious to that person? How do we feel when God is compassionate to someone we feel has brought destruction on our life? What Jonah would have seen is a group of people who have killed, raped, stolen, destroyed people's lives. How do we feel when that destructive person is blessed? The deceitful person, the slandered, the home wrecker, the abuser, the adulterer. What what do you think? God should do to these people. We certainly know what Jonah expected. He wanted God to relent but kill them anyway. He was so angry with God, so angry that he went the other side of what he would have thought was the earth to escape God bringing compassion upon those people. The one thing I've learned quite spectacularly is that God is not on my side. God is not on your side either. He's not on their side, fill in the blank. He's on his own side. God is on his own side and some people are for him and some people are against him. That is it. You know, and I began reading through this and I thought, what am I learning? I can't go around trusting this God who keeps blessing people and showing grace to people that I'm mad at. (laughs) Compassion and graciousness to people who make you mad. That's who God is. Who is that person in your life that would make you angry at God if he were to bless them? What are the implications for you as a follower right now? To know that you follow a God who says that no one is beyond his reach. No one is beyond his compassionate and gracious nature. That's difficult. You know, that I was thinking there are probably like a hundred illustrations I could bring about when life has been painful and I feel like I've been wronged by someone. And I've just had to accept that if that person has approached God in forgiveness, that he will extend his hand of compassion and grace towards that person. It's none of my business. 
If anyone is not finding this difficult, then come and talk to me afterwards because I need to know how it's done. <laughs> okay. Um, so we have the originating text in Exodus, which we're going to be looking at. And then we have this Old Testament story in Jonah. And now we're going to flick through to the New Testament books where Jesus would have referred um, to the themes of this text. God's self-disclosure and Jesus being the living, breathing version of God stepped down into flesh and blood. He would have emanated this wherever he went. So we're going to be going backwards and forwards into a few stories. So keep up or just hopefully follow the words on the screen. But we're going to be starting with Luke 17, verses 11 to 19. <clears throat> Jesus heals 10 men with leprosy. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. In verse 13, where he says pity, pity is the Greek translation of the word mercy, which we said earlier was the translation of compassionate um, you know, and, and people who had leprosy, they were cut off. They were cut off from their community. They were people in a low place. And Jesus showed them compassion. And he didn't just show them compassion, he showed the grace of God. He wasn't just moved by the position of these men. He acted upon that. So flick over to Luke 18 verse 35 to 43. <clears throat> a blind beggar receives his sight. As Jesus approached Jericho, a man, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. <clears throat> when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. <clears throat> he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Actually, when he refers to Jesus as the, as the son of David, which he does, he's actually saying that he believes that he's the Messiah, he's the descendant of David, he's the long-awaited king of Israel from God to usher in the age to come. And that, so that was the short way of saying that. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus, have mercy on me. Have compassion on me, Jesus. You know, the, from the blind men, there wasn't 
He didn't stop. He didn't barter with Jesus. He didn't manipulate or coerce Jesus. He didn't complain to Jesus that he was blind. He was just clear and simple in his request for Jesus to have mercy. And what does Jesus do? He stops to ask the man what he wanted. What do you want? And I want you to see how compassionate Jesus is in both of these stories. He is moved by both sets of these people, the lepers and the blind man. He doesn't just come alongside them and like, oh man, I'm so sorry for you. There, there, there. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye, I'm off now. He doesn't. He's moved and then he's gracious. He acts upon the compassion that he has. He does something for them. How many times do we have compassion, but then we don't follow that up with, what can I do for you right now? How can I help? How many times have our hearts been stirred by the compassion of God? And the question is, what do we do with that? Do we do anything to move into action? with those things, or we just moved in a moment. Sometimes we have this amazing talk and it's like a pet talk, we're like, yes, let's go. But we actually swiftly move on. And the next week we might be reminded, or the month later, or a year, or a decade passes and we forget that God has stirred us. Or maybe we, maybe we respond a bit like Jonah and we're like, to Tarshish we go. I'm going anywhere but there. Maybe we do do it. Maybe we respond for a moment. Maybe we do it out of duty or a bit begrudgingly, like I've just asked my nine-year-old daughter to go and clean a room. She's like, you know, and she might just shove some things under the bed, and that's about it. But you need to know that is not the calling of God upon your life when he calls you into compassion and grace. His compassion and his grace are never out of sync. They're never out of sync. He doesn't show compassionate nature and then begrudge the grace. They're never out of sync. How often is God compassionate? All the time. How often is God gracious? All the time. All the time. He's never out of sync with his own nature. That's impossible for him. But we get stuck in that. We get stuck in that place between compassion and grace. Think about that gap that you might be in where you've been asked to do something. What are you actually doing? What are the steps you need to take? God is compassionate and gracious all the time. And we see that in the flesh and blood with Jesus. Jesus isn't doing this stuff because he's a nice guy with a really sweet disposition. You know, there are times when Jesus did get angry. And I think next week, Paul will be coming to share um, on the part of the verse where it says, slow to anger. This is more than a disposition of Jesus. This is about Jesus being rooted in the belief of who the Father is. He knows who the Father is. So we're going to go back to 
turn back and we're going to Luke 15. The parable of the lost son, as it's known, or the prodigal son. But I think better reflected in the story here is the story of a compassionate father. And so the short version of the, the story goes is that there's a father as two sons. The youngest son asks his dad if he can have his inheritance right now. This would have been the ultimate act of shame in the culture in the Middle East. And we probably don't understand how shameful it was because we don't have honor systems in the same way. But this was akin to the son going to his dad and saying, I wish you were dead already because I want my money. (laughs) He might as well have just said that. And at this moment, the father actually could have banished his son. He could have said, you're no longer part of this family. You've, You've brought shame on us. Please leave. There's nothing for you. But what's amazing in this story is that the father said, okay, son, here you go. Take the inheritance. And so the son goes off, moves to London, lives the high life, drinking, partying, boozing, lavish lifestyles, but actually just spent all the money. This would have meant he was left with no friends, no parties, no food, nowhere to live. Nothing to sleep in but a pigsty and to eat the food of pigs. And he comes to his senses and and decides he's going to go back home in the vain hope that his father would at least let him enter the house as a servant or a slave because he realized that even they were treated better than his current situation. So we're going to pick up the story at verse 20 and read through to 24. So he got up and went to his father But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You know, firstly, it would not have been dignified for the father to run. His son would have been an outcast. And in order for the father to run, he must have been looking out for him because he knew he was coming from afar. He often looked for the son. He didn't think about the shame. He did it because he was filled with compassion for him. He couldn't hold it back. It was in the nature of this father to do that. The son begins his speech, and he wants to grovel his way back in. And we probably think, yeah, right. Given the circumstances, it was right that the son should grovel. But the father cuts him off. He cuts in, and he orders a party to be thrown with the best goods. And what a father. And for Jesus telling this story, that was just his view of what the father is like of who the Father, our Father God is. God, the creator of the universe. God, the creator of the universe, is not given to sudden and unaccountable mood swings. 
He doesn't just do what he feels like when he feels like it. He doesn't just cut you off. He's not a father who is brutal in his judgments. He's looking for you. He's waiting for you. God to Jesus is a father to his son, like the father in the story, compassionate and gracious. God is compassionate and gracious towards you, to me. He's, cry- he's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. It says that in Luke 6. He's kind to the prodigal, not scorning, not punishing. Henry Nouwen writes a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, um, which is a wonderful um, d- story. It's a depiction. He saw a Rembrandt painting of that name, and it moved him. It sent him on this spiritual journey. It's a beautiful book. And a scholar wrote a piece on the book, and I could not find, it wasn't on the piece of work, um, the scholar's name, but he explains it so beautifully. Notice in the story that the younger son is never really sorry for his behavior. He doesn't get that far. He finally decides to return home because he is hungry. He doesn't finish his confession and apology once he realizes that his father, upon seeing him, has already forgiven him. Not only does the father not give his son a second chance to apologize, but in fact preempts his son's begging by spontaneous forgiveness. He puts aside his pleas as completely irrelevant. This is the image of Jesus as God, who forgives everyone and anyone, regardless of their motivation or degree of sorrow or contrition. You know, and this is why scholars say this is an original teaching of Jesus, because it goes against everything we would consider acceptable as humans in matters of God and faith. Not only does the Father forgive without asking questions, but he can't wait to give him new life in abundance. So strongly does God desire to give new life that in the story it's almost as though he's impatient to do it. The father dresses his son in the signs of freedom, the freedom of the children of God. God does not want any of God's children to be outsiders, hired servants or slaves but he wants them to wear the robe of honor, the ring of inheritance, and the footwear of prestige. You know, there's often another powerful message in the fact that the father gives him those things, but sandals were a sign in that time of your freedom. And by giving the son a pair of sandals, another pair of sandals, was in fact the father saying to the son, you are free and you are free to go again if you so choose. I'll still be waiting here upon your return. Such a remarkable picture of Father God. Henry Nouwen in the book of the prodigal son says this, perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is, Be compassionate as your father is compassionate. God's compassion is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive my sins and offer me new life and happiness, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others 
as he is showing me. If the only meaning of the story were that people sin, but God forgives, I would easily begin to think of my sins as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. There would be no real challenge in any such interpretation. I would resign myself to my weakness and keep hoping that eventually God would close his eyes to them and let me come home, whatever I did. Such sentimental romanticism is not the message of the Gospels. What I am called to make true is that whether I am the younger son, the elder son, I am the son of my compassionate father. I am an heir, indeed an heir. I am to become a successor. I am destined to step into my father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered me. Being in the father's house requires that I make the father's life my own and become transformed into his image. Be merciful. Be, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. This isn't an opportunity to walk away today with some romantic notion that God is inviting you to continue to sin and he will forgive, as Harmony Nguyen said. I want you to walk away today in love and freedom, but I want you to carry with you that you have a part to play, to outwork this in the world. God is compassionate and gracious. So therefore, if God is compassionate, we should be passionate. If God is gracious, we should be, how often? All the time. Exodus 34's disclosure is, is not just about God, and it's not just about how Jesus carried that. It's about how you and I were created to be. It's how we choose to live in the world. In fact, it's how we're called to live in the world. It's an invitation to become more like God the Father. We need to have a vision of God that is rooted in this. We don't need a vision of God that he's angry, overbearing. We don't need a vision that he's waiting to strike you down the minute you do something wrong. He is a compassionate father or mother towards you, just as you are created to be towards others. You know, and if we struggle with this, this is more than a personality issue. You know, sometimes, often or not, you know, I say it myself and I hear people say, oh, I, I don't do that because I'm this type of person or I'm that type of person. I've done this personality test and, and that personality test and, and this is who I am. But those things aren't an excuse to not become someone who imitates God. Imitating God's character is our primary position. Our primary character is that we're a child of God. To not show compassion or grace is not an option. How we respond to others reflects our view of God, how we speak to our partners, how we speak to our children, how we speak to others. This was terrible news to me this week, I have to say, because Monday night, 
I was out with some friends in Starbucks, We'd just gone for a catch-up, you know, we hear each other's stories, we, we encourage one another on our journey, and for some reason, I decided, because I'm so compassionate and gracious, this was the night I was going to be in a not very good mood. And um, the person behind the counter at Starbucks, we were waiting for our drinks to come and, and, and cakes, because you've got off cakes. And um, the person behind the counter was actually, like, really rude. Um, so much so with what she said, she riled me, and I told her that I thought she was rude. Normally, I might have just walked away and gone, well, wasn't she rude? But for some reason, my mouth opened, and I was like, you're so rude. You're being really rude to us right now. <laughs> it was just terrible. It was terrible, absolutely terrible. I felt so bad about it. Um, and we went and sat down, and um, I was like thinking, oh, gosh, this is not compassionate or gracious in any way. She's probably having a really bad day. And now I've just gone and told her that I thought she was the most rude person that I've ever met. Um, <laughs> This is not God's character. And as we were sitting there, a few minutes later, the manager came over and, um, you know, he said something like, oh, I heard there was an altercation at the till. And I was like, oh, instantly I was like, yes, I'm very sorry. Very sorry about that. And he was like, oh, no. And then he just wanted us to kind of say what had happened. So I told him what had happened. But as I was telling him, I felt myself getting all angry again. And then God was like, no. And I said to him, actually, I'm really sorry. I'm going to apologize to your waitress because despite how I felt her behavior might have been, you know, it was actually really rude of me to speak out and tell her what I thought of her in that very negative way. And he was like, he said to me, no, I don't want you to do that. I was like, oh, no, 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 I will apologize. He was like, I don't want you to do that. I've spoken to her. And he said, would you like a refund on your drinks? I was like, no, absolutely not. And then he gave us some vouchers for free drinks. Uh, and, and he said, I'm very sorry about what happened and walked away. And I was just like, what? And as I kind of like was recounting this later to Steve, I was just in that moment shown a picture of of God and his character. You know, God, the manager, in the manager, he said, I've dealt with it. Take these free drinks. Don't worry about it. You don't, don't even need to say sorry. And I thought, that is such a picture of how sometimes I, I come to God with all these things. And I'm like, oh no, I've done this, I've done that, and da 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 da. He's like, it's forgiven. Don't worry about it. Take this gift and go. You know, and it, I found it really hard because I understand that how we respond to people is a reflection of our view of God. And I hadn't reflected God in that moment. But your view or your theology of God is what will shape you. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, puts it like this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most potentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, 
but what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is not true only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. What you think about God matters. What you think about when you hear his name, when you speak his name, when you understand his name, it matters. You know, if you think God is angry and forgiving, and as someone who wants to strike you down, that is the message of God you are moving towards. That is the message of God you are believing. It's a false message. The invitation is to recognize who he is and move towards that image and to live in that image and to portray that to a desperate and dying world. God does not hate you. He loves you. He can't help it. Sometimes I think we don't bring our stuff to God because we feel so guilty or so full of shame and we think he can't possibly handle that. That's the enemy. God wants to just see you walk in forgiveness. He wants you to walk in the freedom of a son who has approached his father and said, I wish you were dead so I can have all the money. He wants you to come into freedom. And actually, Colossians, that I know Sandra read from Colossians, a bit further on in Colossians, when we think about what God has done, it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Holy and dearly loved. I recommend you go and read Colossians and read what Paul is saying um, to the church in that moment. There's no, if you do this, if you do that, if you do the other. It's, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. In fact, it says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Dearly loved, dearly loved people, Clothe yourself in compassion. When you get dressed in the morning, which hopefully you do every day, put on compassion. Put on compassion. That's what you need to think about God. You need to know that he is compassionate and gracious. And that, and that matters. It matters for who you are, and it matters to other people. I'm just going to invite us to stand right now. <coughs> Father, I just pray in this moment before you that you will just reveal to us what is it? What is it that we think deep down of you? 
You know, I realized through looking at this that my narrative of God isn't all that great. I always assume that he, he wants more of me. He wants me to do better. I assume that he wants me to, to pay for my mistakes. And like that moment in Starbucks when the manager said, you won't apologize, just take these free gifts. I realized the Lord just wants us to come and acknowledge before him. You don't even need to speak it all out because he's going to cut you off and he's going to put a robe on you and a ring on your finger and sandals on your feet. But not just for your selfish reasons, but so that the world can see and know that we serve a compassionate and gracious God.